Well, we'll be in Luke chapter 18. We're in verses 9 through 14 this morning. We've been walking, if, and most of you know, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, a, a paragraph at a time or, or a narrative at a time. And one of the things that I have loved about uh, walking through the Gospel of Luke is how often God surprises people by defying their expectations. You know, we just made it through Christmas not too long ago, and so we considered the, the humility of the virgin birth of the Son of God in a nondescript town. His birth was not announced to kings, instead it was announced to lowly shepherds. We see that he defies expectations when Jesus grows into a man and begins teaching that Jesus actually taught that it was the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the hated that will be blessed while pronouncing woes and curses on the rich and the happy and the elevated. He told a Roman soldier that he hasn't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. In, in Luke chapter 7, it was a woman with a reputation for being a sinner in the city that was able to approach Jesus and he said, your faith has saved you. When Jesus told the story of, of somebody uh, self-sacrificially loving their neighbor, it was somebody from a despised people group, the Samaritans, that actually helped the desperate man in need. It wasn't the rich man in Luke that was blessed of God. It was actually poor Lazarus who was incapacitated. The dogs would lick his wounds who was actually loved by God. It was the prodigal son who offended the father and ran off into a far country that ends up at the end of the day in the house where there's a party going on while his, the older son, who was clinging to his own servitude to his father, remained outside. It was the tax collectors that were drawn to Jesus while the religious elite are plotting how to kill him. And out of ten lepers that were healed, only the Samaritan turned around and praised God for his work. These surprises in the Gospel of Luke, they've just come to us as you see, as we even just review the Gospel of Luke. These surprises defy commonly held assumptions about what is true and about how God operates in this world. And our text this morning undermines another one of those common assumptions. And it was very prevalent, as we'll see, in the Pharisees and in the day in which Jesus walked. And the common assumption was this, that man is capable of engaging in enough religious obedience to earn God's favor. And our passage this morning undermines that. Indeed, it shatters that assumption with a surprising ending that would shock those who were within earshot of Jesus telling this parable. And it shocks many of us today. So there's two points this morning. The first being that it, that it is, you know, trying to earn God's favor is not only impossible, but it offends God and puts person, a person in a perilous position. So our first point this morning is the eternal danger of prideful self-exaltation. And then we'll see in the second part of our passage, that first part is verses 9 through 12. In the last couple of verses, we'll see the eternal reward of humble self-evaluation. 
So let's look at that first passage, the eternal danger of prideful self-exaltation. Like uh, Jesus did in our uh, the parable we looked at last week, he sort of gives, gives, or Luke gives us the point early on. He tells us the thesis statement, so to speak. Look there in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So again, right up front, we're told by Luke what this parable is about, and that's a blessing to us as we seek to read and understand the Bible, that it's clear and plain to us that Jesus tells this parable to address those who are trusting in themselves and treating others with contempt. Specifically, in this culture, it was those who who thought they could keep the law. What do we mean by the law? Well, God had made a, a covenant with Israel, if you read your Old Testament, you'll, you'll come across this. God made a covenant with Israel, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant it's called, that if they would obey Him, then He would bring them into the land that He had promised them and that He would bless them and they would be prosperous in this land. But if they disobeyed Him, there would be uh, these curses that fell upon him, uh, upon them, these woes. And, and, so, and that was often the case where uh, an invading army would come and take Israel out of the land and bring them into exile. There was these blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. You know, the, the, the obedience required of Israel under the Old Covenant is just it's neatly summed up in the Ten Commandments, but as you read your Old Testament, you come across all these rules. Those are part of the Old Covenant, the books of oh, I can't. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And so since long life in the land was connected to obedience, uh, according to this Old Covenant, many took it one step further then and assumed that, well, then eternal life must be tied to my obedience. Many in Israel were assuming that by keeping the law, they would earn the wages of salvation. In fact, Paul summarizes the problem with with Israel in the way they treated law law in the book of Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and 32. He says this, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Why have, why have Gentiles achieved righteousness, and Israel, by and large, has failed to achieve righteousness because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works? works. So Paul's uh, teaching about the law is the problem was not with the law. The problem was with assuming that you could attain righteousness by keeping the law. And that's who Jesus is addressing here. Those who thought they could attain righteousness, to be favored by God, to, to, to receive forgiveness if they even needed it, because they have kept what God told them to do. Paul doesn't just say they couldn't keep the law. He says Israel had a fundamental misunderstanding about the purpose of the law. They had a misunderstanding about how righteousness is attained. 
They didn't pursue righteousness by faith, like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, but as if it were based on works. They put the cart before the horse, forgetting and neglecting that salvation is by faith and has been by faith since the beginning and not by works. They assumed that they could keep the law in their own power and cause themselves by, by means of their own good behavior to be acceptable in God's sight. So Jesus is addressing those who have misunderstood how righteousness is attained. And this attitude, it, 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 it led them to treat others with contempt. You know, we saw again in our text last week about this unrighteous judge who was mistreating this widow. So we saw last week a really clear illustration of how the disposition of the heart plays itself out in the way someone treats others. And we see that again here. If the disposition of the heart is, I'm good enough to be accepted in God's sight, then the way it often plays out in the way I treat others is to treat them with contempt to try to elevate myself over them. So the judge had no fear of God, so he treated this widow poorly. Well, Jesus is addressing an audience who, who had no understanding of righteousness, so they mistreated others, looked on them with contempt. The person trusting in himself for his own righteousness often leads to treating others poorly or, or downgrading them so that I might be elevated. So now that we've got the spoiler alert, this is what the text is about, we can look at the parable itself and see how Jesus teaches us this lesson and plays it out within the parable. Those who are trusting in themselves and treating others with contempt, how do we see it in the text? Well, we can start by just looking at the parable here. Look at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now it's typical in a parable that you're going to meet the main characters right out of the gate. And this is what we have here. We have a Pharisee and we have a tax collector. Now these are, if you've been with us in the Gospel of Luke over the last several months, um, Years, maybe, if I'm being honest. These are familiar characters. The Pharisees, by and large, are, are, are the perfect example. Now, it's not that there's no Pharisees that were coming to Jesus. Nicodemus seems to have come to Jesus over the course of his life. Of course, Paul was a Pharisee. But, but they, 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 by and large, are the group that's representative of verse 9. Trusting in themselves, treating others with contempt. You know, at some level, we, we, we've said this before about the Pharisees, but at some level, we, we can sympathize with their desire. 
You know, because we just mentioned the old covenant. You know, if you can live long in the land and there'll be blessings for you. Well, that's what the Pharisees were hoping to actually do. They wanted to live such a righteous life and to call others back to a sense of righteousness and obedience to the law so that God would turn from his wrath, maybe kick Rome out of Israel, and they could live in the land that had been promised to them. Maybe by their obedience, God would actually bless them. But instead of calling for faith and repentance, right, the way that Jesus did and the way that John the Baptist did, instead of calling for faith and repentance, they insisted on just erecting all these extra laws to keep you from even getting close to breaking God's law. And these were burdensome laws that were laid on the people. And these ultimately, they did nothing to curtail the main problem, which was a sinful That was the Pharisees. And the tax collectors were essentially the furthest thing from the Pharisees. They were known crooks. They were Israelites who actually conspired with Rome to rip off their fellow Israelites. They would profit by saying, you know what, John owes 10% taxes. Well, I'm going to tell him he owes 20% taxes. I'll give 10% to Rome. I'll keep 10% for myself. Well, they were ripping off their fellow Israelites. They were crooks and robbers. And so these two men, they enter the temple grounds to pray. And that's about where the similarities end. You see, as Jesus tells the parable, that that he's going to highlight both the posture and the prayer of each person. It's the posture of the person, it's the content of the person's prayer that Jesus is going to contrast with one another. We'll see in a minute that when the tax collector comes on the temple grounds, he, he stays far off, he, he, he's far away. And so when Luke says that the Pharisee is standing by himself, it, it probably is meant to, to lead us to think that he just marched right up into the inner courts of the temple. Trusting in his own righteousness, the Pharisee assumes that he's worthy to draw near to the Lord. The temple, of course, represented the presence of the Lord. That's where the sacrifices were offered, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and and it it represented the, the presence of God. And so the Pharisee assumes he can come into the presence of God. And and you see this attitude played out even more clearly in his prayer. Interestingly enough, his prayer actually begins with thanksgiving. In fact, if you take the first five words of his prayer, they're really good. The first five words are really good. God, I thank you that. That's a good way to pray. The problem is what follows. It quickly turns into a series of boasts, a series of brags, a series of of comparisons, all indicating how great he is. You know, it really is a scary thing that the heart of man is so deceitful that man can evoke God's name, even evoke thanks to God, feigning praise to God while remaining in the darkness of pride and self-exaltation, cloaking it in religious language. Oh God, I thank you that. But notice what the Pharisee does. He refers to himself five times in this prayer. 
And he describes himself in the active voice, I am not this, I am not this, I am not that, I'm not like this. Look there in verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He starts off his prayer by essentially saying, now let me me list for you, God, the people that I am better than. These other men, they are rule breakers. They do not keep the covenant. They do not keep the commandments like I do. They extort people. They are unjust, which is a generic term for just an unrighteous person. They are adulterers or, or sexually immoral. And Lord, I'm especially glad I'm not like this tax collector over here. You see then that his, his words are dripping with contempt. He trusted in himself, so he's treating the tax collector with contempt. You know, as we seek to apply this text, I wonder if this, this, this treating others can be a litmus test of sorts for us. How do I act towards others? This can become actually a test of the genuineness of my profession that I'm not trusting myself, but I'm trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Any of us can claim that we, we don't see ourselves as righteous, but we're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. But this idea of treating others with contempt becomes a, a way for us to actually gauge the validity of our profession? Am I constantly irritated by others? Am I characterized by talking bad about others in order to tear them down or that I might be elevated in the eyes of man? Do I look down on others so that I might feel better about myself? If these characterize me or, or, or you, then it calls into question. Where am I looking for my righteousness? Am I looking to myself or am I looking to the cross of Christ? Because at the, at the root of this contempt is pride. At the root of this contempt is pride. And pride by its very nature is competitive. It looks down on others in order to elevate self. But those who have admitted their own sin who are resting in the righteousness of Christ, those who know that they are justified apart from works don't have to be driven by this competitiveness. We can repent of comparing ourselves with others. We can turn away from belittling others to exalt self. We can stop trying to pretend like we don't sin. We can stop defending ourselves. I'm reminded of something Charles Spurgeon said. He said, Brother, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Right? The gospel frees us to say, yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. But the Pharisee, he's unable to see himself this way. He's seeking to justify himself. He's seeking to elevate himself in the eyes, uh, in his own heart, in the eyes of others. He is blinded by his own self-righteousness, so he seeks to compare himself with others, looking down on them, treating them with contempt. And then what does he do? He goes like a beeline straight to his own 
accomplishments. These are the things that I do for you, Lord. What does he do? The text says he fasts twice a week. This amount of fasting was, again, above and beyond what the law required. It wasn't uncommon in Israel, but it was above and beyond what the law required. Fasting was actually only commanded on the Day of Atonement. Not only that, but he ties on everything that he gets. You know, there's some ancient Jewish writings about this time that, that indicated that actually some of the Pharisees were, were so concerned that they would actually, if, if they bought some vegetables in a market, they didn't know if you tithed on that. So they would not only tithe off what they brought in or the crops that they produced, but they would tithe on what they bought just to be safe, just to cover all their bases. And that's probably what he means here, because he says, I, I give a, a tithe, tithes of all that I get. He's boasting about how faithful he is to the Lord. It's obvious from the text, this man is proud that he's self-absorbed and confident in a standing before God based on his own righteousness. In his mind, he's in a league of his own. You know, if we could sum up his prayer, we might say, man, thank you, God that I'm such a great guy, that I'm worthy of your presence. You know, ultimately, what the Pharisee reveals about himself is, is he reveals what he thinks it means to be righteous. And what he thinks it means to be righteous is to be better than others and to be able to boast about the good things that he has done. He's kept the commandments unlike those around him, especially that tax collector. And now we see even more clearly why Jesus would call the Pharisees, they're the blind leading the blind. Because when the Pharisee grades his own life, he gives himself an A+. But as we look at the rest of the parable, as we develop the rest of the text and Jesus' application there in verse 14, the soul of the Pharisee is actually dangling in the balance. The soul of the Pharisee is in eternal danger. We see that only the humble and only those who call out for mercy are justified before God. Secondly, this morning, we see the eternal reward of humble self-evaluation in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast come back to the rest of that verse in a minute. Immediately, you notice this guy has a different posture. Yes, he's, he's standing like the Pharisee, but the issue isn't the physical posture, is it? It's the, it's the posture of the heart. So he's standing, but he's standing far off. He's likely kind of out the furthest most court of the temple grounds there, the, the, the court that the Gentiles could hang out in. And he knows that it's a fearful thing to approach the presence of the Lord. He recognizes his own sense of unworthiness before God, and he acts in humility and care as he, he thinks about approaching God's presence. Humbly, the text says he can't even, can't even bring himself to lift, lift up his eyes toward heaven. He beats his chest, he beats his breast in contrition. Now, that's not something... We typically do in, in, in America to demonstrate our 
grief, but this was a cultural way at the time to demonstrate deep, deep sorrow. In fact, it was most often women who would do this at a funeral to demonstrate the severe loss that they had just experienced. It would be very rare for a man at the temple to do this. But this man has bigger concerns about what's culturally appropriate or what others might think. He stands afar off, he can't lift his eyes, he's beating his breast, and the content of his prayer is actually quite different. The longer prayer of the Pharisee is not actually the commendable prayer. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector uh, doesn't brag about himself. He addresses God as a subject and asks God to work on his behalf. It's a passive prayer. Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. He doesn't talk about what he's done. He isn't thanking God for how good he is. He makes a petition to God for mercy. God, be merciful to me. That's the cry of the tax collector. You know, interestingly, that Greek word translated be merciful. You know, the Bible was, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Greek word translated be merciful here, it means more than, more than like show compassion to me. It means more than be kind to me. It's a form of the word that, that's often translated propitiation. Or if that word doesn't connect with you, it's wrath-bearing sacrifice. And this makes this, the, the setting of the temple even more important. As this man stands far off, somewhere ahead of him, there's likely to be a lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And the tax collector, too humble to look up, too too contrite not to demonstrate his grief, asks the Lord, God, grant atonement to me. May there be a sacrifice for me. The mention of justification in our passage combined with the tax collector's choice of words here, there's another Greek word that he, he could have used. It, it points us forward then from Luke 18 to, to the end of the book where Jesus gives his life as a sacrificial lamb to make full atonement for sin. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is sacrificed so that so that the penalty of sin might be removed, might be taken away. Why does he need atonement? Why does this tax collector recognize that he needs atonement, he needs mercy from God through a sacrificial atonement? Well, he needs atonement because he actually sees himself clearly. He knows that he has sinned against God. He's not, again, trying to impress God. He's not reciting the ways he's better. He's not listing his accomplishments. He knows that that is ultimately nonsense. He simply throws himself at God's mercy. He recognizes that the, the, the point of comparison is not vertical. The point of comparison is not whether he's better than somebody else who ventured into the temple that day. 
He's better than someone else that he, he heard about or knows or is in his family. The point of comparison is with God's holy and righteous standard that's given in the Word of God. And this standard reflects the perfect holiness and righteousness of God Himself, His nature and His character. You know, I was reading an article this week on what it means to be a good person or how you can tell if you're a good person. And some guy who teaches at some school, who's got a PhD, he said, this is how you can make sure you're a good person. He said, pick four or five things that you think are good, like niceness or thoughtfulness, and then judge your actions based on those four or five things, and then evaluate whether you think you are a good person. Now the problem with that, for those of us who believe that God exists and believe that God has revealed Himself in the Word of God, is that we don't actually believe that we get to be the standard of what is good and bad. The issue is, uh, do I have the right and the authority to pick four or five areas and then evaluate my own life? It's It's not up to me. God has revealed the standard in His Word. He, he has demonstra- I have demonstrated through my life that I've fallen far short of that standard, and God has given us the hope we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ for those of us who fail to meet God's standard. And it's in light of that standard that the tax collector knows, man, I'm not even close. I'm not even close. I've fallen so short. He's missed the mark. He's unworthy. And he owns what's true about himself. He doesn't consider himself only a a sufferer. He says, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. If I call myself only a sufferer, I'm assuming that, that sin is only something that happens to me, and, and I need, all I need from the Lord is to keep bad things from happening to me, or keep bad people from harming me or hurting me. Now that's true. There is suffering in this world, and God will set it straight. We've been thinking about the return of Christ, but that's not all that's true. And it's not the most fundamental thing about us that's true. The most fundamental thing about us is we've fallen short of the glory of God. And so what, what, what does he do? He simply admits that he sinned against God and that he's in need of mercy. He's in need of an atoning sacrifice. Jesus, like he does often, and he did in our last text, he actually helps us understand the parable in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. There's two outcomes that Jesus mentions. And this is where, you know, if you've grown up in church and you know the Bible, we, we, we know the story. So it's, we miss this sometimes, but this is where the audience would have been surprised yet again at Jesus' teaching. The tax collector, the crook, the robber, he went home justified rather than the guy that fasts twice a week, rather than the guy that can't even buy vegetables without giving 10% of it away because he's 
concerned. What Jesus does, he actually teases the Pharisee in, in the parable a little bit. The Pharisee thanked God that he's not like this tax collector. And Jesus comes back he's, in verse 14, he says, This tax collector is the one who is justified. That Pharisee is not. Ironically, the Pharisee should have not said, Thank God I'm not like the tax collector. He should have said, Lord, make me like the tax collector. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope that the Lord impresses upon you this glorious truth of the gospel. The gospel is so unique. It's so different from every other religion that says you must do good in order to get good things from God. Maybe it's heaven. Maybe it's prosperity. The gospel is completely contrary to that. The gospel is about the righteousness of Christ, the perfect Son of God, living in complete obedience to the law. The only one. Not this Pharisee. It was Christ. Yet He was crucified on the cross for our sins. And so that there might be, there might be this, this exchange where all those who humble themselves and call on Christ, our sin is credited to Christ, and you get credited with His very righteous life. We sang about it this morning, that God would be pleased to look at you and see the righteousness of Jesus. I wonder if you're willing this morning to call out on God for mercy, to rely on His atoning work on, in Jesus Christ. To give up the idea that your righteousness is found in comparing yourself with others. To put away the excuses for sin. To see that the way of righteousness actually begins by admitting that you're not righteous. And turn to Christ and find mercy. I wonder, you know, even as a, as a parent, I, I'm challenged by this text as I Consider what, what kind of gospel, what kind of gospel are we holding out for our children? This is an application we, we make often in our church because we believe that hope is in the gospel of Christ, not in having Pharisee like children. You know, we can actually become guilty of pushing our children towards a sort of self righteousness. So, moms and dads, just speaking to myself, the the comparative type statements, why can't you be more like your sister? Well, what are we encouraging? Just be better. Just be better. Or when your kid gets to be a teenager and you're wrestling with that and you say, after all I've done for you, this is how you repay me. What are we doing? You should earn this. You should earn the love that's been given to you. Or if the dominant theme of our interaction with our kids is, he's watching. And that's a true statement. He's everywhere and he's watching and he sees and he knows the heart. It's it's true. But if the dominant theme of our parenting is, he's watching and he's going to get you. He's going to get you if you act up. These are little ways we can be pushing our kids away from Christ and towards outward righteousness. Hold that gospel before them. That Lord be merciful unto me, a sinner, is what, what, what we're driving at. 
You know that word in our text, Jesus used that word justified. It matters because it helps us understand that God isn't condemning obedience. Right? We don't want to miss the point by, by reaching the wrong conclusion, by sort of reacting and, and missing the point of what Jesus is driving at. You know, a while back, we were driving, and you, know, you hear the kids talking in the car, and one of my boys said, I, I swallowed my gum. And one of the other ones says, on purpose? Yes. And with disappointment in his voice, he looked at his brother and says, Next time, swallow it on accident. <laughs> you know, concluding, concluding that God does not care about your obedience is looking at the facts and saying, you should, you should swallow your gum on accident rather than on purpose. Well, that's not what you should conclude from the statement, I swallowed my gum. It's to miss the point. Jesus is not condemning obedience and righteousness and living life unto the glory of God. He is condemning the reliance on obedience, the reliance on keeping the law, hoping and trusting in that for your right standing with the Lord. That is what Jesus is after. That is what he's seeking to undermine and destroy. The issue is how can I be right with God despite my sin? Not Jesus wants to undermine obedience. The Pharisee was blind to his own sin, and so he refused to rely on God's work to be justified in God's sight. He refused to rely on God's grace and mercy and to be justified. And Jesus tells us why at the end of our text. Why is the tax collector justified? And why is the Pharisee not? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbled himself will be exalted. We've seen this principle laid out for us in the gospel already. This is a theme of Jesus' ministry, that the humble will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And what do we have in our parable? We have the Pharisee who sought to exalt himself. He treated others with contempt in order to exalt himself. He belittled others and he bragged of his own achievements. I'm sure he felt really good about himself when he left the temple that day. That he was able to look around and see sinners all around him. And see himself above them and walked home pretty proud of his own righteousness. When you get to verse 14... When the final verdict comes down from the lips of Christ, that man was not justified. The self-exalted will be humbled. God promises to bring low those who build themselves up. God opposes the proud. Again, as we think back on our time in Luke, we might be reminded of the rich farmer who didn't consider that his day of death may be before him, and he built bigger barns in order to have more stuff instead of giving stuff away to serve others. He pridefully assumed that he could have many more years to accumulate more wealth and serve himself. We might be reminded of the rich man who left Lazarus out in front of his gate with nothing and no one to care for him. These men were exalted, yet God brought them low. 
the rich man, his soul was required of him that night. Lazarus went to be where Abraham was, in God's presence, while the rich man who ignored him ended up in Hades and suffering. Both of these men were ultimately humbled. And I think that's what, what Jesus is driving here, that, that the humbling of uh, the self-exalted may or may not happen in this world, but it will happen in eternity. So don't trust in yourself. Don't exalt yourself. Humbly admit your sin and run to Christ. God, God exalts those who, who humble themselves. He justifies the one who sees a sin and trusts in the atoning work of Christ. Though the tax collector was a great sinner, he went home justified. You know, this morning, I don't, I don't assume I know the state of, of everyone's hearts. I do assume that there's two types of people here this morning. Those who look a lot more like the Pharisee and those who look a lot more like the tax collector. The Pharisee needs to humble themselves and turn and renounce their good works. But I imagine there's many in this room this morning who are wondering, can God forgive someone like me? Can God forgive someone like me? I hope this morning for you is that, 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 that your joy and the foundation of your faith will not be found in excuses or comparing yourself with others. But the assurity of your salvation will be found in this. A broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. The answer to the question, can God forgive someone like me, is a resounding yes, because our forgiveness is not earned or merited. It rests on the work of Christ alone. So if you are a Christian this morning, you can rest in the hope of the gospel. In fact, when, when the end of your life draws near, you don't have to lay there rehearsing in your mind all the good things that you have done in order to find assurance that you will enter into the Lord's presence when you die. Leave, leave the self-exaltation to others at your funeral. Instead, you can be like John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who, who at the end of his life, near the end of his life, he said, I've forgotten almost everything I know, but I know these two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That is the foundation of our hope. Let's pray together. Lord God, we rejoice that you justify the ungodly who humble themselves and turn to you. Lord, may we rest in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. We thank you for the gospel. May we rest and rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.